Hello and welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the vlogcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. During this final episode of season one, I sit down for a chat with Shannon Doherty, a teacher and assistant head teacher in London, who shares her experience of teaching, her school leadership values, and gives us exclusive access to her new book, 100 Ideas for Primary Teachers, Maths. Whether you're new to teaching or a school leader with tons of experience, this interview is a must listen. And if you happen to be listening on your preferred podcast provider, don't miss out on the extended cut in which Shannon takes on the national curriculum tier list, ranking some of the national curriculum's most intriguing and often controversial requirements. Full interviews are available from the Thinking Deeply by Primary Mathematics YouTube channel or thinkingdeeply.info, where full show notes and references can be found. Without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So, Shannon, welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education. It's great to have you here. Thank you. We always start with the teachers and numbers, just to get to know a little bit about them. And your first one is years as a teacher. Six. Number of schools? Three. Last year group taught? Two. Favourite year group? I don't think I can answer it. Is there a rule that says I have to give an answer? Because I don't know if I can. They're, they're good for different reasons. That's all I've got. <laughs> you, can have, you can have one fence set. Um, That's my fence set. Most important year group? One. Tweets? Well, the worst thing about this is everyone who has been on has gone, oh, it's embarrassingly high. It's like 6,000, it's so many. And mine is 30.6 thousand. Oh, and I, I have no excuse for it other than, I think I've been doing it maybe longer than some. And I think I do it more often than many. And I think, you know, in that, that's like your replies as well and stuff, isn't it? So people tag me in things I reply. Otherwise, I'd be impolite. And I'm, you know, I pride myself on being polite. So it, it averages out at about 21 a day, which is fine. No, I'm fine with it. You're usually involved in um, quite healthy discussions about education. So I think it's it's good. You exactly. Know, you know, so it, it doesn't matter that it's 10 times as many as... as many. <laughs> <laughs> it's madness, isn't it? How does it get to be so nothing. many? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> so you're currently a senior leader responsible for mathematics and teacher at a mm. school in London. Tell us about mm -hmm. your journey and how you got here. So in year four, age seven, I decided that age seven, age eight, age eight, how old are you in year four? That's bad. Eight. <laughs> I know how old children are in primary school. Aged eight, I had a teacher called Miss Stanton, who I thought was the coolest person in the world. And she wore denim hot pants and, and like high heels to school every day. And I thought that was the epitome of cool. Um, and once I saw her go into, she was really stressed. And I saw her go into a cupboard 
And um, the year six teacher, Mr. East, went in there and he gave her a kiss. And I remember going home and being like, what is this? What is this job? Um, and I thought it was a cool job. And I thought, you know, she looks happy. That could be something I would do. And then I kind of just always said it in my head. And I went through years of being like, I'll be a dolphin trainer at the weekend and I'll be a maths teacher Monday to Friday. And then, you know, as you do in year 10, I did work experience in a primary school and I really liked it. And then I did work experience in year 12 in a secondary school and I did not really like it. And I mean, I was in a drama department, mainly because I hadn't been bothered to look for work experience. And my drama teacher said, just come and and be with us for for the two weeks. And my friend and I both did it and I just couldn't stand it. I have so much respect for secondary school teachers. They do a wonderful job. I just can't be around the teenagers. I can't take it. Um, And then, so before I went to university, I decided to take a year out because I was pretty dead set on being a teacher. And I thought if I'm going to spend from the age of like five to whenever I retire in education of some sort, you know, as a student or a teacher, I should probably take a year out and just enjoy life. And so I took a year out and I carried on working at Waitrose where I'd been working for a few years and I TA'd part-time and that was really good because obviously I got to be in a school a couple of days a week. Um, Did some other jobs like bar work and I was a receptionist at a sports club and that was, I was very, you know, certain that teaching was the way for me. Then I went to Greenwich and I did a three-year degree in education studies, which people at the time were like, what is this joke degree you're doing? And I'd have idiot uncles being like, you're going to uni to learn about education. It's ridiculous. But actually, like it genuinely fascinated me. And I had like these eccentric lecturers who were lefty as anything and they had the, the most crazy views and they taught us so much stuff. And we looked at all the background and sort of the foundation of schools in the UK and the history of education and, you know, all the psychology behind it and how children learn. And it like genuinely laid the groundwork for me to become a teacher. So even though it was a bit of a joke degree and people laughed and I only had like eight hours of lectures a week. I loved it and I, I, you know, and I enjoyed it. And then after that, I did, I went back to Greenwich and did my PGCE with Elliot Morgan, who I, you know, didn't know at the time, but it's come out that apparently we were on the PGCE together. Um, and it was, looking back on it, probably not the best teacher training, no offence to the people at Greenwich. Some of them did a wonderful job, but looking at what we know now, it just, I don't think it really cuts the mustard, but you, what can you do? Um, and I did a couple of really like opposite placements. I did one at a school called Lancelot, which was in the heart of Lewisham, um, very interesting children, very interesting families. You know, there were fights, every swear word under the sun I heard on my first day, but I properly fell in love with it. After about a week, I was like, oh, well, I will work here. I love it here Um, and my mentor went off on long-term leave so we ended up being the teacher with another student so we literally in our second week of our placement became the teachers not right at all you would not do that now you would not let two students who have who are on their first placement and have never taught 
a group, let alone a whole class, run a class. We had the, the PPA teacher would come in in the afternoon and do a bit of sort of history while we had some time out. But um, it was eye opening. And, you know, I know that my teaching was probably absolute rubbish. But I learned, I guess, a lot because I had to learn a lot. Um, and my friends were sort of teaching groups and observing lessons and they might have the odd full lesson, whereas I was just, you know, a teacher for 11 weeks, which was bonkers. Um, but like I said, I loved it. And we had like our tutors would come in and be like, this is not the right situation for two students who are this early in their training. And we'd go, yeah, you're probably right. However, we we like it and we want to stick with it. And we had the like the nightmare class and we'd been put in there as extra bodies, obviously, but they were crazy. And I remember having an observation and um, two of them literally had a fist fight at the end of it. And I was like, I just, <laughs> I've taught this wonderful maths lesson. And then you've just lined up for assembly and you've erupted into this fight. But I, I really liked it there. And then I went off to another placement and it was not Lancelot. It was very different The you know, the children were the complete opposite. And I kind of worked out that I didn't want to work in that kind of environment, even though they were lovely. And I saw a lot of good practice there and I learned a lot there. I, it wasn't for me. So I kept kind of hounding the head teacher at Lancelot for a job. I would pop in every now and then because I'd made really good relationships with like the TA I had who would fall asleep in every lesson, but she was lovely. And so I'd pop in and see her. And then I'd knock on the head teacher's door and say, you know, have you got any vacancies yet? Can I come for an interview yet? Because I have no shame. And um, eventually there was a vacancy and I, you know, did my interview and I, I managed to get it. And I was over the moon to be working um, at Lancelot. And um, so I did my NQT year there was year group partner with my best friend, Jen, who is Miss Doll Teach on Twitter. Um, and like learned so much from her and, you know, owe her a lot really, because she really did a lot that year, far more than I imagine anyone should have to do. But she kind of just held me together and she did so much stuff. And then in my second year there, I did a um, like an intense maths mastery course with the Southeast London Math Hub and um, that was just insane it was so so good and I, I'd always loved maths I was always a massive nerd at school but that course just opened my eyes and I was like well this is this is where I need to go this is what I need to do and my maths leader at the time Andrew Squirrel lovely man he was just incredible and would let me come and bug him and he would let me do little bits of staff meetings and he wouldn't mind if I came and asked him questions. And um, I think I think I would still be at that school if I hadn't moved. So I, would, I bought a house at the end of my NQT year with um, my then partner and it was like the commute was just getting too much. It was like 45 minutes in the morning, over an hour on the way home. I just couldn't. I couldn't hack that anymore because I was working long days as you do in your early years uh, of being a teacher and I just I you know I had to find somewhere else and so I managed to find a job nearer to my new house 
um, at a school called New Valley. And there I worked for Sally Dubbin, who is just the best maths guru other than you that I know. Um, she just she just knows so much. And she was part of the maths hub and she went off to Shanghai in my first term there and I was just so jealous and I just was like I have I want to be her when I grow up and she would let me do loads of stuff with her and she um she was in charge of her TRG and uh so I would have about 14 teachers come and observe me like every half term teaching maths and uh that was brilliant it was terrifying but now you know I can have someone walk into my classroom and I'm not panicked because I've had 14 people sit there. And that gave me sort of the opportunity to sit and talk through my maths planning and all of my decision-making and why I said that and why I used that image. And that I think really um, put me in a good place for moving on to lead maths. I I ended up not being overly happy there towards the end of my time. And so um, I was very luckily (laughs) offered the chance to come and work at another school uh, for a January start. And I never thought I'd leave the school at Christmas. You know, you know that thing of when you're early in your career and you go, oh, well, I'd never leave mid-year. You know, I, I couldn't do that to the children. But then you realise that actually they will get over it and they'll move on. So I left at Christmas and I went to work at my current school, which is St John's, which is part of the Aquinas Trust. And we have uh, 11 schools nine in Bromley and two in Rye, really randomly. Um, Nine of the schools are uh, Church of England, which is brand new for me. You know, I'd never worked in a faith school before, so that's really interesting. Um, And I took on maths, like, sort of as I'd settled in. Uh, I was in year four in lovely, lovely class. The school was on a bit of a turnaround journey. So... That was nice to be part of. And then we got Ofsted in July, (laughs) like... something like the 5th of July or something and we were not expecting them and it was the like genuinely a huge shock and I'd gone through Ofsted at Lancelot so I kind of knew a little bit but it was just before um you know the the new framework was starting so they were kind of experimenting with certain questions so when I went in for like my maths grilling and they were asking me sort of deep divey questions I was just like I don't want to be here why 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 is this me I'm like I took maths on like two months ago and I started here in January please don't hold me responsible for anything you're seeing and I was very much like everything I'm putting in place is for September this is what it will look like but I don't have that for you right now but they were lovely and um we managed to get good so you know and that was their our first good in I think 21 years so uh it was it's it's a, a big big journey And then obviously lockdown happened last year and now this year and life's just a bit strange, but that's me done, I think. Probably talked for like an hour about me. No, that's the the most action-packed intro anyone's done so far. So, you know, really the the other guests should be ashamed. (laughs) They should be ashamed of themselves, quite frankly. What what have they been doing with their their lives and their time, really? Um, few classics in there the the, um the didn't organize a place to go so ended up going to the school and work experience is um is something i've forgotten but that's an absolute classic Um, and oh it is isn't it 
But on a serious but, note, I think um, everybody needs a gin in their first year, you know. Oh, it's, they do. It's it's so intense. You know, I'm still really good friends with him, with my mentor. And, and he did the exact same thing. He made sure that uh-huh. I was, um, you know, tr- surviving, <laughs> essentially. Exactly. And he, and he still It was that. wonderful. And she um, she would have her leadership time on a Tuesday afternoon and I'd have my NQT time and we had PPA in the morning. So we literally had Tuesday all day out of class together. And we just developed the, the best bond uh, to the point where come April, we were booking a holiday in our PPA <laughs> as a research for our travel agents topic. And we were like, well, we have to go on a recce <laughs> to the Mediterranean. <laughs> so we booked a holiday together. But she, yeah, she, I totally credit her with, surviving my NQT year she's a good one I think if anyone's in that position and they can be a gen I think they should absolutely go for it and, and, and be that rock that agreed because I, I, I think it's called quite a few times you know that first year's tough but then um, we need as many teachers making it through as, as we possibly can um, absolutely yeah um, and also I had to pull you up on the offset story because from what I heard you did a very good job in that interview with them with <laughs> So I think you're downplaying, you know, exactly how much hard work went into that uh, and what a great result that was for the, or what a great outcome that was for the school. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very good, um, but terrifying. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I've definitely said this before, um, they're, they've been really open to listening this, this last three, four years, you know, uh-huh. in my experience. So I think, um, you know, every time. You and I think. We saw that at Lancelot as well. Because um, when, so the head teacher started at the same time that I started, and she had been told that the school was on the brink of outstanding. Um, and it was the opposite. We were, you know, requires improvement at best. And she walked in and was like, oh, this is not the on the brink of outstanding school that I had signed up for. And so then, and we had Ofsted in my second year. Yeah, in my second year, I think about halfway through, and we just started like no written feedback, and um, they came and they the the HMI basically was like, what would what good would come from me giving you requires improvement when I can see that you are making moves? I you know and listen to everything that they were saying, and just sort of said, me giving you RI it would will, will not be good for you. You are clearly making moves, and making progress to be in a good school and that kind of that kind of mentality I think is really important with the inspectors to know that they can see the light at the end of the tunnel that we are heading towards and not just that we we've been in a bit of a bad situation or had a couple of years of bad data. So let's almost let's let's go into the classroom then. Um, mm. What would the four most prominent features of a Shannon lesson be? Well What I will say as like a disclaimer before I start this is that I've listened to the other interviews and everyone has taken my answers. And I had, you know, like when we heard the first one and we heard Lloyd's podcast and, you know, that's that's a question that you're going to ask. I started to tick ideas over in my head and think, what, what, what would my four be? And I had a long list and one by one, they've all been taken which I think is probably what happens when you come so late and you, you, you're at the end. So, you know, there are things that would be on my list. I've tried not to copy too much, but I am also aware that we all do similar things. 
and probably that's for the best that we will do a similar thing and we will see those as like good practice so my first one is like high quality modeling and I know um this has been spoken about but that sort of I do we do you do approach and I know you and um Neil Alman talked about the silent teacher and I think that's just so important you know doing whatever you're doing and showing them that hey you can actually be fluent at this and you you know often with mine if it's some sort of procedure you know I'll 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 show them me doing it at my speed that I'm doing it and I'll be like this will be you you just need to follow what I'm doing you know and I'll show them at speed and then I'll slow right down and they will start to see what I'm doing and I'm not talking. I'm not expecting them to listen to what I'm saying and watch what I'm doing because that's hard. People don't tend to do that very well, particularly not children. So I do do that sort of silent teacher approach and I, you know, will draw their attention to things and then we'll start to pick it apart. And then I'll start to explain the thought process and um, we'll do some together, create those kind of like worked examples and, um, you know, they will eventually have a go and they, you know, they might have more than one go. We might go through the, the process again and again and again. Some will, will go off and, and start. Um, one of those tips that I love, and I think we all loved it when we heard it, was the, the mini whiteboard tip from um, Matt Swain at Step. And I think he said it at Bruid Maths and he, and it was like, you show one line at a table or one pod of tables at a time. And I was like, oh, that's genius. Why have, I, why have I never considered this instead of the whole class holding it up and you're like desperately trying to see what they've all said. And so that, you know, I incorporate that kind of um, into my I do, we do, you do. And actually, you know, my children are so used to it now and I always do it in the same order. So they just do it for me, which is wonderful. Um, yeah, so that sort of I do, we do, you do, modelling, scaling it back, really showing that thought process and actually drawing their attention to the really important bits and the why you're doing it and not just going, well, this is column addition and I'm just going to do it again and I'll do it again and then I'll do it again. And eventually you'll just learn it because you've watched me so many times because that is not a successful approach. Um, and I think we need more of this sort of really broken down modeling. And um, I work with a teacher who she's here from Canada and she's lovely, Natalie. And she, um, She's, you know, early in her career. And that's one of the things that we've sort of talked about is just you you can't model too much, just model it for them. And if it means that you've had that kind of like shared experience for a lot of the lesson, but then they can go off and do it, that's far more beneficial and a better use of your time than doing like three examples at the front and then off you go. So, yeah, that's, that's my first one, which I think... Um, I think lots of people would agree with. Um, if we're going from a maths point of view, which seems to make sense since it's the two of us, then um, I would talk a lot about representation of structures, which I know uh, Lisa talked about as well. Like I said, I found it hard not to duplicate these ideas, uh, but I could talk for so long about this because I just, I love talking about representations. I love talking about CPA and the use of manipulatives and what they should be used for and what they shouldn't be used for. Uh, and I've had like lengthy debates with people about whether you should just put all the resources out and let them go wild or if you should really pick carefully what you're using. And um, 
I did a talk at my trust conference actually we have these wonderful conferences every year where teachers do seminars and um I was asked to do one on maths and I decided to do one on um manipulatives and what manipulatives to use for what and why and not to just get everything you have out and expect them to use them at some point there will be children who can do that and you can have a tray of resources and they'll go oh, you know I'm going to use that for this problem because I know that that will work but it takes a long time to get there and you have to explicitly teach how to use things and um I'm going to talk a little bit about structures more probably later but uh I think more schools are a bit probably more au fait with using manipulatives and sort of edging towards maybe using some high quality images but I think we think less about structures I think that is something we probably need to work on as a profession I don't think that that many people are that well versed in what the different structures of calculations are or what that looks like or how you can model that best um so that's something that I really like working on and I would love to work on some more if I can get back into school but I am working from home so I can't um but I think one thing that's really important with the representation structures you just can't take anything for granted you can't assume that they that the children understand or the teachers that you're training you can't assume that they understand why you know why a tens frame is called a tens frame that sounds really stupid and you think it's obvious but if you just give something a name and don't relate any meaning to it then they'll just start using the words tens frame and have no idea and so I spent a lot of time with mine being like why is it called a tens frame shall we count the parts and think how many counters can we put on here until it's full and if it's full what is it how many is it and I just don't think you can do enough of that same with a bead string like emphasizing that they are in tens or like a reckon wreck it's in fives you can't you can't do enough of that what seems like you are teaching granny how to suck eggs but actually you know it's invaluable and so uh in you know, the majority of my lessons, there is some representational structure highlighted. Obviously, at some point, you want to get away from manipulatives, and the, the goal is that they can do it without them. But for the most part, they're there. And even if it's just that retrieval of like, do you remember yesterday when we used this? We're going to try not to use it today, but it's there if you need it, kind of thing. Um, and that I think would help develop that sort of like innate numberness that many of them don't have. And that we need to kind of forge a little. That's my second one, which I'm sure you'll agree with, being you. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, my third one has also been talked about, and I think it's been talked about like three times, um, and it's cold calling. And this is one for me that, as far as I can tell, isn't happening like as a rule in many schools. Uh, I think if we were like flies on the wall, we probably wouldn't see a lot of it. We'd probably see a lot of hands up asking the same hands because it's the easy thing to do and we've all done it. Um, but I think it's really valuable. And I think, you know, that kind of expectation of I will ask any of you, you all need to be prepared, but also without putting on the, the pressure and giving them that anxiety. I know Chris talked about that um, before and about sort of, the, the way you put yourself in their shoes and you say, oh, you know, I made that mistake as well. I'm so glad you did that. And making sure that that's, that's your culture in your classroom. But I think um, that, that misconception of cold calling puts them under pressure and it's high stress. And, 
you know, it gives them anxiety is so wrong. I just think you need to have that developed in your classroom and you need to say that, you know, we're all we're all taking part. I have a small class. I need them all to take part. Otherwise, it's just the same two children putting their hands up all the time and it's not fair. And you can't have that um, that mentality of, oh, I can sit back because so-and-so is really smart and he'll just listen, he'll just listen, put his hand up and he'll answer. And then I don't need to tune in. They need to pay attention or they'll never learn. And so um, I do think, you know, if you've got the right ethos and your environment in your classroom's right, then it's the better form of questioning. And um, I was talking to someone about this the other day, uh, weirdly, as you do in your free time, you talk about, you know, teaching and learning strategies. And uh, I was talking about lolly sticks and how when you start teaching, you have a pot of lolly sticks and it was very much, you know, you pick it up because then it's fair. And then, you know, the children don't feel under pressure. And I remember at the time when I was in NQT, I was like, I don't want these lolly sticks. I, and I remember going, I think they're stupid. I don't want them. If I want to ask a child a question, I'll ask them a question. Um, but I was asked to use lolly sticks. So I used the lolly sticks, but it was very much like I'm pulling out a name. I'm not going to look at the name. I'm just going to say who I want to answer this question. Brilliant. And you don't know that. It, and it, But it worked. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's any harm in saying to the children, this is cold calling. I don't expect your hands up because that's not what we do in this room. And, you know, I need to ask you questions because I need to constantly assess you and I need to make sure that you know what I think you know and that you haven't been sat there daydreaming. So I think um, it's a huge one for me and it just helps you see, like, who is on board and who is on a different planet. And, you know, that constant assessment needs to be part and parcel of your teaching and then my fourth one um I sort of umming and ahhing about whether or not to include it because it's that it seems like an obvious one to me but I think if you're if you talk to some people it's not still I think we have this bubble of Twitter and conferences and our friendship groups and we assume that everyone is the same as us um so my fourth one is live feedback and you know in the moment marking um, so like I said earlier, my first school Lancelot, we introduced no written feedback at the start of my NQT plus one year. And, um, I remember at the time kind of being like, I mean, it sounds great. You know, I don't have to sit and do deep marking and expect the children to respond. It was like, okay, miss, thank you. That And then you'd have to respond to that. Like, you're welcome. That ridiculous conversation you used to have in books. And we used to, I, I hope that no one minds me having a moan about this, but we used to skip a page in our English books purely for marking. I'm sure other schools have done this as well. But, we, you know, they would write on one side and then we'd write on like the nice fresh page side with the thick paper. And we would just, we'd highlight and then we'd put a bit of that highlighter in the margin on the next page and then write what they needed to do. And that is just a madness when I think back to it. I see the cost of books like who has the money to only write on half of your book that is just insane to me but we used to do it and we used to do it like three times a week in in you know every subject and so anyway um so we brought in the no written feedback and it was uh, based on that kind of eef review um a marked improvement i want to say it's called and um that was sort of my first insight into educational research and sort of going oh so people do research and then they produce these papers and then we read them and then we put them into practice this is wonderful 
being the nerd that I am. And so I remember, you know, we were told about it in a staff meeting and we were given the reference on the PowerPoint and I went off and I was like, well, I'll go and Google this and I'll read it. And I did. And I remember being like, well, this makes sense. You know, I know, I know I'm only two years into this, but this is, this is smart thinking. And so, like I said, I have a small class. And so getting around them all is quite easy. And it's rare now that I don't have that time to pick up on someone who isn't getting it because I'm, I'm, I'm around and I can see where they've gone way wrong. Obviously, you still get some children who are copying each other, which is a pain in the bum. But for the most part, I can see, you know, if it's a genuine like slip or error and they've just written the wrong number or they just miscounted once. Or if there is like a deeper misconception that I haven't picked up on during my teaching, um, you know, we deal with it there and then. And my TA is wonderful and she does the same that I do. If we, you know, we might have to sit and work with a couple of children at a time, but generally we can circulate the room and go, oh, you've done this and start, you know, ticking because there is still that expectation that work is ticked currently, and um, <laughs> which I'm not that fussed on, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so it gets dealt with in the moment and that, that, that feedback is there and then, and that we don't sit on it for a night. They don't have to come back to it the next day and go, oh, well no idea what this is relating to and so um it's sort of like a no man is left behind ethos in our classrooms because we expect it to be dealt with as much as possible in the lesson and if it isn't doable then it's a same day intervention because you've been doing your live feedback and you're in the moment marking so I think it's an important one for me um so that is my fourth one but what I will say is that I, I was also tempted to include retrieval and multiple choice questions which I think I'm sure we would have had a wonderful conversation about and also the explicit teaching of language but I chose not to I chose to go with those four it was very hard it's like you're trying to sneak in everybody else's answer <laughs> um, I, this is my struggle I, I, the thing is when you when you look at those four even yes they've been said before but when you put those four together you've got the reason that there's a teacher in the classroom. You've mm. got to try and transmit some sort of knowledge, some sort of understanding, mm-hmm. some sort of learning. You've got to find out if that's worked and then you've got to do something about it. And, you know, absolutely. I, I'm thinking back to year one. When you ask a question, you're just trying to get to go to the next bit that's written on your lesson plan. And you're like, mm-hmm. okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. Um, let's get to the end. Whereas actually, if you're thinking about the behaviours you've described, you're thinking about what it is to be a teacher because yeah and I think I said at Matt's conference I'm rereading responsive teaching and all of those things mm. through really strongly in that book and it's almost like a guide for teachers even with missteps along the way him um, mm-hmm. towards that kind of thinking and yeah so I think that they, they could possibly be the strongest four uh, suggestions because of because of how they work together and um, yeah yeah so, so I, I I, that. I'll take that <laughs> you know, but you you can't sneak five six more answers <laughs> like, how many can I get away with <laughs> um, so then thinking bigger picture mm-hmm. how, do, how do you instigate change on a school-wide level so I thought long and hard about this and I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all approach had I had time today I would have made a lovely flow chart because I have this sort of mental flow chart going on in my head as I talk about it 
And I think, you know, it depends what the issue is and it depends how bad it is to, you know, work out what your response should be and how you should try and develop whatever this area is. Uh, You know, I think there are times that you have to sit back and just watch and there are times where you have to consult the staff and there are times where you just have to tell them and say, well, this is what we're doing. Deal with it, which isn't always the most popular approach, but there are times for it. So I think if you, for example, like behaviour, I think if behaviour is a nightmare and it's out of control, you have to come in and say, this is what we're doing. You are going to do this. These are the steps you are going to take. I need your cooperation with this. Obviously, we will work together, but we're starting it from tomorrow because it's not, you know, a long-term project. It's something that needs to be fixed now. And so, you know, and I think generally teachers respond to that for that kind of issue if it is behaviour they will recognise that behaviour is an issue let's try and fix it but if it's um, something else something more meaty not that behaviour is not meaty but I do think behaviour is one that you can just go this is what we're doing don't deviate from the plan you know follow the policy Um, yeah if I think it's something else then you need to kind of think bigger and I think if you are new to a school I think Chris said this as well if you're new to a school you need to to sit back and watch and you need to actually work out what's happening you need to get your bearings and like an accurate picture of what's happening because like I said earlier you know my head came in and thought we were on on the brink of outstanding but she didn't she had she had to sit back and go oh no okay I need to approach this differently So you have to take the time to see what is wrong and what's right and then work out what your moves are. But if you are, you know, if it's just something like a school improvement project that you're doing in your school that you've been in for a while and you recognise that something needs to change or you need to put something in place, then you don't have to obviously do that kind of observing step. You can just put your plan together. And I think... um, a lot of you know a lot of teachers appreciate the the consultation where you go well what's working for you what's not working for you why isn't it working what would reduce your workload what's the worst part about your job that kind of thing and I think in an ideal world we'd always have those conversations but we don't always have time for them and I have been on both sides of it where I've had to go in and be like this is what we're doing I haven't consulted anyone or you know I'm the teacher I'm the teacher in the meeting and sat there going why the hell have they not asked us because this is the opposite of what I would want to do and unfortunately you just have to live with that um so I need you need to think about like what is your end goal here what does you know god tier of this thing look like how are you going to get there how long will it take reasonably how long will it take not you know we'll, we'll fix it by Christmas um and how will you know when it's genuinely embedded and how you know that you know you can take your foot off the pedal a little bit because the teachers are doing it it's ticking along it's doing what you want it to do um I just said you know you need to think realistically about what how much time it will take and um I think you said this at MathsConf about you know there are very few quick fixes in teaching and in um in like school leadership there are you know quick wins that you can do but there are there are very few things that you can just fix overnight. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, leaders are under pressure from whether it's, you know, a trust or a local authority, and they're expected to whip something up and they're expected to change data overnight. They're expected to whatever it might be. And so I think you have to, 
you need to have that middle ground of I know that I'm under this pressure but I can't then put that pressure onto my staff because I'm under this pressure and that's unfortunately the 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 deal when you're a leader as far as I'm concerned you get paid enough to handle that pressure although that might be an unpopular opinion and don't come and tell me I said that in 10 years time when I'm under the pressure um so I think for me like a a successful approach is to to try or something first so if it you know if it's a, a curriculum change or a scheme of work or you know whatever it might be you need to have that like small case you need to know that it works on this smaller level you need to know that you know year one and year four did it successfully or five and six tried it and it worked really well and you can and then you have that time to experiment and really find your feet before you then take it school-wide because there's nothing worse than saying we're going to start this next week everyone all at once no one knows what you're doing and then you've just got one person who introduced it trying to fight all these fires and 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 everyone is finding their feet at the same time so if you trial it those people should generally be your team players you've got your sort of early adopters the people that know it works and the people that will have your back when you then go to roll it out to the rest of the school so then you can start to you know open up that discussion show them it works in in wherever you trialed it where's the evidence you can share research with them you have to do a little bit of selling then I think it's not a case of you can say well we're doing this now because we've done it in year one so you're now going to do it in year four there has you have to you have to sell it you have to show them why it's going to pay off where is the benefit and what you know staff need a bit of a buy-in like what is what's going to come out of this for them because generally when there's a change staff can be resistant because it looks like more work to start with if you're changing something that you've been doing for years you're going to be like oh but this now means that I have to spend all this time on this when actually I could spend half the time doing something that I've been doing for years that I think's fine when really you know deep down I think people know it's not fine but we choose the easy life so I think you have to give them that reason to buy into it and they have to see that actually it's going to work and that there's a reason behind it and it will you know be better for workload or it will be better for the children otherwise if it doesn't have those things why are you doing it um and I don't think you can jump the gun and assume that everything is fine because you've told the whole staff to do something. I'm sure we've all worked out at some point that just because you tell someone to do something doesn't mean they're going to do it. And you have to you have to have those opportunities to check in and get a genuine gauge of how it is actually going. And you have to have that sort of open door, come and bother me, come and ask me questions. I will come and help you, whatever it might be. Um, One thing that I think some schools get wrong is that they, you know, if they look at their school improvement plan and they know that they've got X amount of objectives to tick off and different things and they're under pressure, they will start the next thing before the first thing is embedded and then the first thing falls apart and then teachers feel under more pressure, leaders feel under more pressure. You have to make it a habit. It has to be part of your day-to-day practice before you can then move on to the next thing. And I think part of that is introducing things bit by bit and, you know, not overwhelming them with everything at once. Um, And I think you have to accept that your results won't happen 
quickly. And when I say quickly, I don't mean, you know, in a week. I mean, they won't happen in a year, probably. They probably won't happen in two years. You know, I think you said this as well about um, at MathConf, about, you know, to get a genuine picture of how it's going. You're probably going to go through seven years because you need that whole cycle for it to have happened. And if you were introducing something in reception and then rolling it out, or even in key stage one and then rolling it out, you have to dedicate that time to it and you have to say, you know, it's working, but we're not going to see the genuine success of it until this year, whenever it is in the future. Um, which can be really hard, I think, for some people to accept. And I think some leaders are like, well, I might not be here in five years. So, you know, I want to see results now. But it's not, it's not, it's not like a, pl- a plaster over it job if you genuinely want to introduce something and have that school-wide impact. And I think sometimes that's the approach people take because they go, oh, well, we'll just do this for now because it will work for now. And then it'll be someone else's problem. But we can't do that. So I think that's my approach to school-wide change. I think a solid approach. And you actually remind me of a few of the sort of assistant head teachers I'm working with at the minute because whenever I come in with a, a grand plan for the academic year, um, you know, and some genius uh, <laughs> cognitive science that I've that I've decided we <laughs> must implement. And the first thing they'll say is, "Well, what can we take out of the out of the workload? You know, what what what's what's been removed?" And yeah, and they're always, you know, a large part of what they do is making sure their teams, because they have phases, and um, mm-hmm. their team are on board. And, and I think the idea of having early adopters is so important because. Mm. It, it becomes a snowball, doesn't it? You know, so I think that, that, that's it a does. piece of gold among among many pieces of gold, maybe 147 in the <laughs> one section. <laughs> I try. Um, so I think the next one is uh, is a big one because the maths edition of 100 Ideas for Primary Teachers is published in May. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask you the same question I asked Christopher Such, because I'm <laughs> the Jeremy Paxman of Primary Education Podcasts. Why mm. does the world need this book? Well, <laughs> this is a, it's a really hard question to answer because I think many people just by nature are not particularly uh, braggy. I think I'm probably the least braggy person in our kind of circle I find it really hard (laughs) to talk myself up and uh so I'm going to try because I have had to think about this because I had to write an introduction to say you know why you need to buy this book and uh why what you'll get from it so I think it's fair to say you and I know there are some interesting practices still going on in maths teaching we or mathematics teaching because you love to say mathematics and I always think it sounds so nice when you say it um I think there's definitely been progress and we are, are moving in the right direction but there is still some really interesting stuff going on and I will use the word interesting because I don't want anyone to come at me and tell me and say that I called their practice rubbish but um you know I think I'm pretty vocal on Twitter at times as you said earlier I get involved in some debates you know I started that ridiculous one about formal methods and written methods in year two a few months ago and that was that was a fun one 
Nothing um, about it. <laughs> no, and it, it you know it was it was important, and I got involved with the crocodile one as well, which was another important debate. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was asked about a year ago, and clearly Bloomsbury thought it was something that needed to be written because they had it as a like a prospective title, and they they came to me, which I never thought would happen, and it sounds ridiculous as I say it. Um, but, you know, teachers are time poor. We don't have a lot of time to dedicate to reading. We don't have a lot of time to dedicate to professional development. I wish we did. Um, I think if I ruled the world, I would give teachers an hour a week to just do reading or a webinar or whatever it is that they feel they need to develop and it be self-led. Um, but we're not in that situation, so I can't. Um, but this for me is something that, you know, early career teachers, NQTs, trainees, people that haven't been teaching maths for a long time, people who haven't been teaching maths in this sort of mastery way. Um, this but like I hope it will be something they can pick up and take ideas from. You know, it's literally called 100 Ideas. There are literally 100 ideas. And within there, there are little bonus ideas that... Uh, I had to include um and they are they you know they cover the the national curriculum to an you know I can't obviously write 100 ideas for the whole curriculum but they they cover all the different topics in the curriculum you could there are ideas for year one there are ideas for year six there are ideas that you can change depending on what your year group is um and tweak it you know the the target audience for this book is not people like you it's not people like probably a lot of teachers on Twitter because they are already engaging in their own development but it's for the people who are genuinely scared when it comes to teaching maths and don't have an idea and don't have you know a supportive network in school and don't have a, a well-written curriculum you know I try not to delve into the the edgy Facebook groups too much but when I do, like I'm admin for a year three, four, one, which is super random considering I teach year two now, but um, that's life. And uh, the things that people say, like, you know, someone said, is anyone teaching year four fractions? Because I taught fractions of um, shapes yesterday. What should I teach next? I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What should you teach next? How do you not know? So there are genuinely people out there who don't have like a, a structured and well thought out curriculum given to them, which I think is a madness. And I think, you know, it's, it's insane. And it's not those teachers fault in the slightest. It's whoever their maths leaders. Um, but those teachers can hopefully go, Oh, I've got to teach something mathsy that I can't think of right now. Like um, something to do with percentages. There's a couple of percentage ideas in there. Um, what can I do? I'll, I'll open this book and I'll go to the fraction decimal percentages section and I'll go to idea, I don't know, 45, I'm going to guess. But that's why people need it. It's the people who genuinely don't have the resources in school and don't have the knowledge already and don't have the experience of creating their own activities so um, I think that's it. You know, it should highlight some of the important things in what I, you know, I think are maths, um, important things in maths teaching. 
And I'm hoping that people get, if you know, if you did read it cover to cover, which no one feel the pressure to read it cover to cover, feel the pressure to buy it because, you know, it's going to be a great, great book. Um, but if you did read it cover to cover, I think you'd pick up on like the word structure several times and you'd probably pick up on the word representation or manipulatives or something. Um, bar model, which I'm sure Elliot will not be pleased with. But, um, you know, those sort of things, they're like a running thread throughout the book. And I think hopefully people will read it and go, oh, that comes up a lot. That must be important. Let me look into that a bit more. So I think that's why the world needs it. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> um, and so true. Because, you know, I think you hear 5% of teachers are on Twitter. So that still leaves quite a lot of people Crazy, not, isn't it? not engaging um, in that sort of conversation. You know, I'm not saying it's, it's the be all mm. end all, but... Um, like I'd never even consider Facebook as a as a viable option for somewhere to get advice on, on my practice. I mean, you'd give wonderful advice on Facebook, but you would also tear your beard out. <laughs> I deleted my Facebook well over six years ago. I've never gone back. Yet. I'm tempted. So, sorry, Facebook. Sorry, Mark Zuckerberg. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't worry. We've still got WhatsApp. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, which which leads on really nicely to my next question. What are your five favourite ideas? Right. I found this really, really hard, partly because I haven't gone to look at it since about November, because I sent it off at the end of August. And, you know, they sent me sort of an edited version and so I had to look at it and then they were like we're going to go and lay it out now and then we'll send it back to you when it's done and I, I don't know what's happened you know I think they're very busy people so I haven't like seen it laid out and I've kind of gone well I'll wait until it's laid out and I'll see how you know the pictures look and if the words look like there needs to be more words on the page that kind of stupid thing um because it has to go through three levels of um, like editing and you know I know what the process is I'm just waiting to start the process at this point and so I've kind of gone I'm going to leave it and then I'll I'll look at it when they they send the the whole thing um, so I had to go back and look at my first draft and look at what ideas I included and what I thought would be my five favorite and I'm sure my five favorite would change because that's the kind of person I am. I can't, I can't make decisions and I can't stick to one thing, as you saw with my four features of uh, Shannon lesson. Um, my first one, though, is called Battle Frames. I had to come up with 100 zazzy titles. <laughs> so as the, as the ideas progress, you'll probably notice that the, the titles of the ideas get more and more boring because I was like, how do, how do I make this one interesting? How do I not just call it what it is? So it's called battle frames and it's the idea of um like the the numberness of number being overlooked not spending that time on what a number looks like you know numbers to 10 particularly so it's the case of having a tens frame and having some counters and setting out the rules that you you know like battleships you have to guess where your partner's counters are effectively and you have to guess what that number is and so you have to kind of agree you know I'm going to have it vertical and I'm going to fill it up from the left side down or up you have that sort of agreement so that it's not really difficult because these will be sort of your one children 
um, and they have to compete against their partner to try and guess their chosen numbers. So, you know, you might say something like, well, is it an even number? Have you filled every section? Have you filled every section on the left-hand side or have you filled every section on the bottom row? Um, are there the same number of counters on the left-hand side as the right-hand side? Um, have you got two spaces? And it's all yes, no questions. Um, and then eventually they'll work it out because they have that kind of power of deduction because they can visualize it in their head. Um, so it's that idea of really being secure with what a number looks like and knowing that if it were six, it would look like five and one. Or, you know, if you then move it on, it might look like two threes. Uh, so that is one of my ideas. And it's something that I think that you, you can spend time for children to play with their parents quite easily. And that is um, a little suggestion at the bottom of the idea. I've got, I've, got, I've got it on my screen so I can have a look at it. Um, but it is like, you know, it's one of those things you could send a tent frame home and say, fill it with like pasta and play this game and, and send the instructions home. And it is a game and yet they are learning. So that's the first of my five. That, that is genius. Um, I know exactly what I'm going to do on Saturday with my youngest. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, we're definitely going to play a battle battle frames <laughs> i love it as an idea and i you know i played it with my year twos because they missed a lot of school last year they're not all secure they weren't all secure i hope they are secure now on numbers to 10 um but it's an it's a nice game you don't have to sit there in a high stress environment you're just at ease with whoever sat next to you and um yeah it's a nice one i think that you could probably scale up in different ways as well, if I really thought about it. Um, so number two is called spotting structures. And I wish I could show you what I'm going to describe because then it will make sense. And I worry that I can't describe this well enough. So you will have to bear with me. So the idea behind it is that there is a tendency to rush in to using numbers when you are going to teach some sort of calculation and in my mind this is sort of around year two probably you know start of year three to make sure that they are secure and so if you imagine you are working with deans or base 10 and you have what looks like and you would not use the numbers with the children but I have to use the numbers with you so you can visualize what I want you to visualize so you've got 23 add 15 equals 20 add and then a space in dings and then the whole point of this is that you can then very easily see that you know you've got two tens on both sides and then what is left will be what goes in that gap and I think it's that whole um you know how often do they get those questions wrong in a, say an arithmetic test where they just can't balance it they'll add up that side and then they'll try and take that from that and there will be some sort of error because they don't genuinely understand what they're doing. And so for me, it's, you know, you are working with the structure first before you start adding in numbers. Obviously they know what these deans mean. They know it's 23, but I'm like, we don't need to call it 23 right now. We're just looking at it. We're just spotting what is the same. And then we can work out what is different and what will go on the other side. And, you know, it, it could work for more than just the two-digit numbers that I have mentioned. Um, but that, for me, is a really important one. Like I said, structure comes up quite a few times. And I think we don't do enough of that kind of 
you know, we jump quite quickly into here are some numbers. We're going to add these numbers mentally. We need to just pair it back and go, do you actually understand what makes this problem a problem? Do you know what the maths is here? Because I guarantee you most of them don't. Yeah, I think I think children find that particularly tricky. Um, yes. You know, I'm, I'm sold on this already, you know. I can't wait until May. <laughs> <laughs> you just... You'll just find these five really good ideas and then the other 95 will be rubbish. But it's fine because there's five bits of gold. Um, Yes, that was really important to me, I think. Um, And both of those were sort of like early when I was, um, you know, because they approached me, but I had to write a proposal so that they knew that I could actually do this. And so that I knew that I could actually do this. And, um, one of the things was like list as many ideas as you think you might include in the book. And I think I listed something like 50, just, I was just like, just like they were just coming out of my brain. Um, and most of them aren't in the book now, but they were, they were obviously good enough to sell it. Um, and though, but those two were on my original list because I just thought they're just such important concepts that, we don't spend enough time on. And then we wonder why children in year six can't do it. Even that question of like 23 out of 15 equals 20 out of something, like there will be children who don't get that in year six. And that's a, it's a crime. Like we're doing a huge disservice to our children if we're not teaching them that. Anyway. What I, what I really like is that, because I've imagined what it might be like to try and come up with a hundred different ideas each one so far has had a, a rationale behind it. You know, that, that's, that's quite mm-hmm. a powerful idea, you know, and I didn't expect that. Maybe yeah. But, um, yeah, no, that, that, that's really powerful. I guess like, yeah, okay, here's the reason why you need this activity, you know. Um, yes, that, I mean, I tried really hard to make sure there was just like a reason. Some of the, like towards the end of writing it, I remember sitting, I sat in my armchair, which is, I'm looking at it right now. And I remember just being like, I've got 23 left and you you were texting me saying how many have you done and everyone was texting me saying how's it going and I'm like it's fine and I, I lied to so many people and said yeah I'm really done because I was just like I, I can't tell them that I have 23 left so yeah I probably lied to you at some point so I apologized about that but I did really try and come up with you know there is a problem that we need to fix and this might go some way to fix it. So the number three is um, called what it is and what it isn't. And it's the idea of using like standard, non-standard, non-examples. And I don't think that enough people necessarily know about it. And I think people are probably a little scared because they know it's, you know, towards, um, you know, variation theory. And I think that terrifies people. And I think it terrifies us a little bit as well because it's not, it's not set in stone and people think different things about it. And you can hear one thing from a maths hub and one thing from someone quite academic and you think, what do I do? And so um, I thought I'd include a little bit so that, because I think this is something people can go in and go, well, this will work for lots of different things. I'm going to try and use it. And that's something I've said to my teachers is this is something that before we get into all of the, the genuine like meaty theory about variation this is something you can understand this is something you can go 
Oh, I understand why that's a non-standard example and I understand why that's a non-example and I understand why it might be important to show them. And so this one is all about halves and, you know, it's very simple. I have a picture with different shapes that are split into two parts and they have to, and, you know, you have to look at what is a half and what isn't a half. And there are some genuine just standard examples like a circle with a, straight, a vertical line. And there are some like a square that is on its side with a diagonal line and then there are some that are you know not in half but many children will think they are in half because they haven't grasped that whole equal part thing yet um and I think that's a really nice entry kind of level way of looking at non-standard non-examples because they're not looked at deeply enough I think you know I say I make these generalizations I haven't been in every primary school I don't know but this is the feel I get from talking to people. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, the, the idea behind these interviews is sort of to get teachers' impressions of the world in which we're working, you know, and, mm. and, and carrying out our work. So, you know, you speak to your truth, and that's that's all we can do. You know, there's no way we're going to be able to solve mm-hmm. absolutely everything. And no. it's, it's really interesting that you talk about sort of the debate about um, variation and stuff. And I think what you're doing by mm. giving those examples is in my opinion, what needs to happen next where the the profession needs to take the advice and then show what that might look like. You know, what does it look like in our classroom? Yeah. And then collect a bank of ideas that work, mm-hmm. you know, because we can argue until we're blue in the face and we may still be arguing in, you know, 20, 30 years time. That's not going to help us yeah. in class, you know, tomorrow morning. No. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. And I think you're right that we could actually still be arguing about this in 20, 30 years time. You know, it's it's not like it's a brand new thing and that they've just come up with it. And so it's not set in stone yet because it's it's brand new. It's not brand new. It's been talked about for a long time. And yet we still haven't really decided what it is, which is why, you know, it does need to be handled with care. And you can't just go in gung-ho and be like, we're doing variation and this is what it is and that's it. But you can drip feed in these, these little bits because these are bits that we we do understand and, you know, we've talked before about how we still don't understand it to its entirety because we can't yet. But this kind of like, like you said, doing this sort of thing, having this bank of uh, examples would be beneficial. Yeah, because they can take your idea and then turn it into a slightly different idea. And then over time. Exactly. Tons of ideas that work in the, in the same way. Excellent. Mm. This, is a song, this is a strong start with... These three's first three. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so number four is something that I think lots of students struggle with, and I'm going to say teachers struggle with it as well. And I feel like it's probably a bold call to make, but I think you'll probably agree with me. And it's that whole idea of um, like a pre-sale price, and you know that there has been a percentage taken off, and you need to work out the original price. And I think it flummoxes so many people. And actually, it doesn't need to. Because if you know what that should look like in your head and you understand the structure of it, then you can answer that really quickly. And so I've approached it from a bar model point of view. And the case of, you know, here's your original price. Here's the percentage it would have been. And then you can work it out. You just need to see what it looks like. Um, 
And I'm sure there will be people who are anti-bar model who will disagree with me and who will say, just teach it. But actually, this problem particularly, you really need to see it. Even if you just see it a couple of times and you suddenly go, oh, that's what it looks like. That's how you can like picture it in your head when you're faced with this problem. But I do genuinely believe to be successful and have a, a real kind of deep understanding of this style of problem that does just flummox people you have to see it and I think a bar model works well for it and I'm sure you can work out what my bar models look like because you're an intelligent person and if anyone is listening I'm sure there'll be lots of listeners um if anyone's listening and going I don't know what that looks like just ask me and I will draw it out for you because it's is valuable and you don't need to wait until May to buy the book I'll just draw a few now I was thinking it might be great for you to do a video on these five and then we could share that oh. <laughs> in the run-up. You put me on the spot now. <laughs> you, know, you never know. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm hard to pin down, so I'm just so busy and important. <laughs> this is taking, what, six months? <laughs> I said to someone this morning... I've got this podcast uh, recording tonight and um, I've been putting it off for a while. And they're like, how long? And I was like, well, I think some of them were recorded a couple of months before Christmas. Uh, and I just keep avoiding the topic because I, I just get so nervous and like full of imposter syndrome. But it's fine. We're here. Um, right. So we've had four pretty good ideas. It has been four, hasn't it? I haven't suddenly got to pull out. No, it's four. No, it's been four. four yeah. I'm on number five. Um, number five is called Seeing Doubles. And it is the idea that we need to expose children to the connections that are in maths. And so linking things between concepts, um, making something just genuinely explicitly clear to them is really important. So I'm coming at it from... Uh, the perimeter of a rectangle angle where um, they need to know that the two parallel sides are the same length and they need to understand that if they see seven and two as the measurements of your rectangle they just need to double it but I rarely see this taught and I don't know why because it, it just makes sense so for me, you know, I would do some sort of, uh, you know, starter to get them thinking about doubles because not enough children can double mentally, even like one digit numbers. I am, um, we do maths passports at our school and uh, we introduced them before I was maths lead. And hilariously, I got the old maths lead a pilot's hat to wear when he was testing people. And I didn't think, like, I went into this job knowing I was going to take over maths. And I didn't at any point think I'm going to have to wear this hat. So now I have to wear the hat. <laughs> but um, one of the uh, objectives, I can't remember what passport it's on, is doubles. And it's like the number of children who get stuck on it for like at least a month when they've nailed all their other um, targets in that one passport and they just can't do the doubles. And you think, surely you've been doing this since key stage one, you're in year five. Why can you not do double 15? You know, it's like, it's very easy. That's a horrible thing to say, but um, 
I've said it now. Um, <laughs> but you do, you go, why do you not know how to do this? Because actually when you do learn it and you've taught them really explicitly and you've gone over them again and again and again, and you have that aspect of retrieval and you you revisit them constantly, then they should know them. You should say double seven and they should say 14, but not enough do. So this idea is um, make sure they're confident with their doubles or as confident as you're going to get them. We'll rarely get an entire class who are genuinely confident in what you're doing. And that is a shame, but it's the way it is. And I think if we waited until the whole class was secure in everything, we'd be waiting a long time. And you think you just have to accept at some point they you need to move on. Um, but then you do all the, the work and you do all the intervention and you make it fine and it's all fine. So this is, you you know, you make sure that they're good with their doubles. It might be that you revisit it for a lesson. It might be you revisit it for 15 minutes, you know, depends on your class. And then you are looking at the perimeter of a rectangle. You see, you know, show them examples of like, seven seven two two and show them that you know the, the sides are the same and then start to take them away and be like well what do we know so what can we do so let's do that um and I think it's just one of these things that they just not enough children make the connection because not enough teachers have made the connection that actually this is a really easy way of getting your perimeter and uh, you know I think many children fluff a question like this because they're too busy trying to add four numbers together and those numbers you know they might be decimals or they might be bigger numbers and so making that kind of calculation slip is a lot easier and so giving them this kind of uh, strategy and making them aware of this kind of connection is a very helpful thing to do so that is my fifth idea seeing doubles nice I like it yeah because in my experience, uh, 2A plus B doesn't get as much of a run as it deserves. You know, you'll often see A plus B plus A plus B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a, I suppose I consider myself a bit of a purist. I, I, I much prefer, you know, the two with the brackets and then the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, over two when, you're, when we're talking about dividing by two. That's my yeah. <laughs> motives. No, but I'm totally with you. They need, to, they need to see it. And I think putting it into that kind of language and showing them that, um, you know, introducing that tiny element of algebra, there's nothing wrong with it. It's going to make them stronger when they come to it properly later on. So I think that kind of element of this is how you, you can do it is very helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely <laughs> really excited now for this book because, um, you know... Oh. <laughs> Five really strong um, activities, some of which I'm going to use with my own kids this weekend. A, a, a rationale for them, you know, um, you know, I think this is going to be really powerful and, and really useful for teachers. Um, and if you could do a video, then I'm sure they'd, they'd all really love to see that and, um, you know, explaining. <laughs> uh, I'll talk to my people. <laughs> modeling, you know, and then we could share that on the on the YouTube and it'll probably be the most popular mm. video that's <laughs> it will not your videos are so good they are so good <laughs> um, and so which part of May or do we can we expect to buy, be able to buy that in shops I want to say the 13th I think it was originally the 6th and I think people started to order it and then it 
got pushed to the 13th. So hopefully May 13th. Nice. Before goes to plan. Fingers crossed, we'll be open and able to have uh, a launch, which will be fantastic. I know. I did think last year in lockdown, like, thank goodness this is probably going to come out next year because <laughs> otherwise I won't have a launch party. And now I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's four months away. <laughs> I'm probably not going to have a proper launch party, which is obviously all I care about. Well, I think <laughs> I think you deserve to celebrate the, the hard work you put into it. Um, but I think you've also got the summer window you know I'm still having a launch party mm. even if no one else comes and it's just me <laughs> absolutely I was in September <laughs> yeah well we need to do it <laughs> um, so changing the topic just a little bit Saturday conferences mm-hmm. are clearly a passion of yours um, mm. why do you enjoy them so much I'm just a bit geeky about our job. I just think it's wonderful and I love making myself better at it. And, you know, Saturday CPD is cheap and accessible and it's friendly. And sometimes it's in the pub, which is wonderful. Um, The first one I went to was Primary Rocks three or four years ago. I can't remember. Um, And I was new to Twitter and new to using Twitter and um, but I was taking part in the primary rocks chat on a Monday uh, because I think lots of people kind of spot it and go, oh, this is primary based. I'm going to delve in. And they start talking about primary rocks live. And I was like, what is this thing? This sounds great. And then they were like, the tickets are going on sale at nine o'clock. And I remember being sat in the bath and going, well, I'm going to order a ticket to this thing that I don't know what it is. But everyone seems to say it's great. And so I ordered two tickets because I was like, I'm not going alone. I'll find someone to go with me. And um, luckily I did. And uh, it sold out in like two minutes. And I was like, I, am I going to see Beyonce? Like, what is this thing? And it was, you know, it, the tickets just went. And it was in March and it was around St. Patrick's Day. And it was just like the best day. And I remember kind of coming away from it being really excited and sort of like my primary teaching passion was like reawakened. And as, as much as I've never lost it, it was like, Oh, it's, it's like invigorated it. And I suddenly have these ideas and I've seen these people talk. And I, you know, I remember seeing, I saw Stephen Lockyer who I love and I don't remember who else I saw, which is really bad. Oh, I saw Rob from the literacy shed. And I saw someone else. Oh, I went to a computing one. That's what I did. It was like unplugged computing. So I went to things that I was like, I know nothing about this. There were maths ones, but I remember being like, I'll go to things that I am not good at, which is why I went to computing. Um, And we built Lego and it was wonderful. And I remember sitting in this room and being like, these are people I've interacted with on Twitter, who I have sort of, you know, come to see as like Twitter friends, which seemed super sad at the time, but now it's just my life. Um, And then we all went out after and got completely drunk. And I, I, you know, I had not been that drunk for, for a while since I was like 18 and it was mad. And I think I got into bed at like 5 a.m. And I drove home at like 12 from Manchester and I, but it was just the best weekend. And I got back and I was like, this is incredible. There are more of these things. 
and so um I started to look out for things and Brewed Flip in Oxford was happening and uh it was organized by Edge Finch and I had kind of seen Brewed they were very new at this point and I'd seen them and thought these look great because you're in a pub and every picture of them people like holding up a pint at like 11 a.m and I was like, what is this? And um, so Kate Obridge persuaded me to get a ticket because I was having a bit of a rubbish time. My, and it was my birthday weekend and she had been, you know, with made Twitter friends. And so we met at the train station and we met at Marlebone and got to Oxford, ordered a cider at 10.30 in the morning, which is ridiculous, like a strawberry and lime cider, which is not a breakfast drink. Um, and that was my introduction to Brewers. And, you know, I think... When lockdown hit, I think I'd gone to about 20 of them. And, you know, I've organised three. And I spoke at one last February, which was terrifying but wonderful. Um, And it's just the best time. And I know there's that argument on Twitter constantly of um, people shouldn't do CPD on, on the weekends. It's their free time. But I'm like, it's my free time. I can do with it what I want. I have no children, no husband, no one's depending on me. If I want to spend a tenner on a ticket for an all-day event where I can sit in a pub or a school hall with my friends or even a bunch of strangers and talk teaching and learning and develop myself professionally, then I see nothing wrong with that. And I wouldn't have had all of the professional development I've had in the last few years if I hadn't been going to these things. Most schools don't have the budget for regular CPD. Most weekday CPD is like hundreds because that's people's jobs. And I understand they need to charge for it. But the same speakers then speak at the weekend for free. (laughs) So why would you you not go to that one? Um, And I just love it. And I've made so many friends from it. I've made, you know, from Twitter, but mainly from going to conferences and meeting people and it's like I found my my people, like my tribe, which sounds super cringy, but it that it's how it feels. And particularly in the last year, you know, I've developed this friendship group of now like best friends who came from organizing Brewed Mass. And it's just if I just think it's the best thing in the world. I don't know if that's coming across, but I love it. And I can't wait to get back to it because I can't stand like I can do like, like an online webinar for like an hour or two. I can't do a whole day online. And I know that last lockdown, they they were happening. But I just can't do it. It's not me. And so I haven't done them. And I just, I'm like, I just need to get back and sit in a pub function room with some friends because then I'll feel like me again. So, yeah, that's me and Saturday CPD. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I think you're hitting all the key points. Um because you're right, really high quality, really affordable. And mm. like, I personally was quite intimidated. And um, before I went to Red, before I went to Brewed, um, you know, the one in the wheeled, just because new yeah. people, um, mm. yeah, it's, it's just not nice. Um, but when you get there, everyone's absolutely, you know, absolutely lovely and fantastic. And, and like you said, yeah. finding your people, you know, because everybody's interested in CPD, you know, and they're giving mm-hmm. them time. And, um, you know, it's wonderful, you know. So 100%. It is, it is brilliant. And like, said, like I think everyone feels a bit intimidated at first. And whether you're going to a brewer and it's 30 people in a pub or you're going to like a research ed and it's uh, the most people in the room I've ever seen, they're, they're equally scary. But you do just get there and you go, oh, you know, I feel at home. 
because I'm surrounded by people who believe what I believe. It's lovely. And so what advice would you give anyone looking to get involved? I would just say, just do it, like bite the bullet and just do it. You you kind of have to just go, I'm going to book a ticket to something, you know, preferably something local to start with so that if you really hate it, you can run away. But I think it probably won't happen like that. Um, just jump on the train, you know, you will make friends there. I, I can't think of an event, particularly a Bruehead where it is more intimate, where anyone has been left on their own for the whole day. You might, you know, watch the first person and just sit in the corner, but then eventually you start talking because there are breaks and people talk to each other and we're a really nice bunch. And um, I just think if you're seeing events be tweeted about and you don't know what it is, ask someone. I... I am happy to have strangers DM me and I know that's going to get me in some hot water, but I, you know, I have message requests set up for a reason, but if someone DMs me and says, you know, I've had it before where people have been like, you're tweeting about a brewed. What is a brewed? And then I've explained to them what it is and said, it's the best thing. Please book a ticket to one because they are the, the loveliest days. And I think if you're tempted and you, you think, Oh, but I don't know just reply to someone who's tweeting about it and say what is it how can I get a ticket or message someone I tweet about when they're happening that's pretty much what I tweet about that's why I've got 30,000 tweets because I sit on a Saturday and just tweet whoever is talking and I just like a live feed of it and so just like you just have to jump in and I think you know eventually you get to be part of the crowd and you know you, you meet up with people and you agree to go to the same events and then you start organizing them and then you start speaking at them and it's the best time it's a real hoot nice um, <laughs> as you're saying that, i'm actually thinking you know has there been a bread in ireland because it surprises me that there hasn't oh. you know maybe maybe i, think oh, I can't think of what happened and um, consider how much of a central role the the local public house plays in the community in ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, i would expect it to be quite a yeah. popular idea um, yeah, so maybe watch this space. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and speaking of bread, mm. January January eleventh, two thousand and twenty, the extremely popular bread mats took place. It Will did. there be an edition in twenty twenty one? I really hope so. We had such a good day, you know. Um, and we have made the best friends from it. And if there is a time that we are all allowed in the function room of a pub this year, then we are doing it. You know, we talked we talked about doing it online and then replicating it in person. And I think, you know, if if it looks like pub gatherings aren't going to happen, then an online one is definitely an option. And I think we will, you know, we'll end up doing that if if we can't make it happen in person but you know I would love us to organize a second one because we had such a successful day last year and I didn't know what it was going to be like because there weren't any subject specific brewers there'd been like an earliest one and there'd been an SEN one I think but there hadn't been a subject and so I remember sitting there at a maths conference for the Thames Maths Hub and going this would be better in a pub with some, some alcohol. And um, so I, I, and I tweeted then, 
does anyone have any interest in this? And then like Elliot texts me saying, yeah, I think this would be great. And other people start to say, yeah, I'd talk if you wanted me to talk. And then slowly we developed it. And I just think, why, why would we not do another? And I think, you know, even if we have to do it outside, like a little brewed maths festival with bring your own alcohol or non-alcoholic drinks for those who don't want to partake. Um, I think we need to make it happen. And we've already talked about names. Like we talked about names last year, like this time last year, we're going, who can we get to talk next time? And it's been a year and we've just been locked down for most of that time. But if we can make it happen, it will happen because it's wonderful. And there's definitely an appetite because you're talking about things sound like quick. The tickets for bread, yeah. maths the first time, they went very oh, quickly, didn't they? They went very quickly. And I think if we did it again, there'd be more people who were like, oh, it looked so good last year. Yeah. I'll go again, I would hope. <laughs> I just, I, the one thing I worry about is that people will be scared about getting together. And I think part of me is like, I want to be the first one to do it. I want, as soon as it's safe, I want to be the first one that organises one. But then I'm like, will people come to it? Because there are going to be people who are feeling anxious about getting in a room with 30 strangers. We'd need to pick a really big room. More than 59 or 60 people this time. <laughs> that, 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 that was the request. But <laughs> <laughs> so we will, you know, we will do it. I'm confident that something will happen with the hashtag Brewed Maths. Excellent. Fingers crossed. You know, and I think yeah. last time I suggested that my five favourite types of bar and rooftop bar was my selection so maybe yeah are both outside and spacious you know that, that, that may be something i think that's a wonderful <laughs> idea have a little cocktail sounds brilliant <laughs> excellent um so one thing every guest gets asked uh-huh. is for their research thunderbolt and um, the moment when the scales fell from their eyes and the world was was brand new what mm-hmm. what is your research thunderbolt so i said earlier on that my, my first sort of insight into research was the marked improvement um review but that um as much as like i read it and was like yeah that you know that wasn't my kind of thunderbolt moment i think the real moment was when i read um why minimal guidance during instruction does not work by like kirshner's fellow clark you know um you know the one. And um, I just think it's so important to get over that idea that they need to discover something to learn it. And it's something I, you know, I'm sure Morgs will back me up here, but our PGCE was heavy on the discovery learning. And when I went into teaching and I started teaching, it was very much like, this is the best kind of lesson this inquiry-based lesson is how you do things and um I've always been a bit skeptical about it but I've always had people who are more experienced than me and more knowledgeable I you know I would imagine going what you need to do is uh you give them a maths problem and you let them do it and you don't have any input at all and you just let them explore it and discover it for themselves and I remember <laughs> those like the, the least successful lessons I've ever taught because I haven't taught um and I 
I hate the fact that I put children through that for an hour when I could have actually taught them something that might help them. Um, and I mean, don't even get me started on the level of problem solving I was expecting from them because it certainly wasn't the kind of like two years previous that we would do now. Um, so that kind of lesson was very popular or uh, the kind of lesson where it's like a humanities thing and you've got, I don't know, four different texts or four different sources and uh, the children are sat on a table and they have to read their own thing and then they just have to teach it to each other. And that's your lesson. And I just I, I can't see why it's ever been popular and why it's still popular now in some circles. Um, so like I genuinely it's not for me. And so I remember someone sending this to me, I think after a conversation on Twitter quite early on and um, me being like, oh, my word, finally, this is this is what I need. This is the, the, re- the actual evidence and research that I can throw in someone's face if they say to me why don't you try inquiry-based learning? Because it's very hard when you are, you know, being observed and someone more senior than you is saying you should do this and you're sat there going, I don't think I should. But I'm an NQT and I can't argue this with you. But being armed with this kind of uh, paper is just a game changer. And, you know, it's something that I can be like, well, have you read this? (laughs) Because actually... I would disagree and so this one I think for me is just like light bulbs everywhere fireworks and just stop expecting them to learn on their own because it's probably not going to happen yeah it's um I think it's an important paper I think um there's a nice bit of cyclical motion going on because this is the the first thunderbolt of this season it's also the last thunderbolt um, <laughs> and lloyd and i were talking about um how well written it is you know so i think mm. if you're looking to give someone an accessible piece of paper and um, that's going to say there are other ways you know because i yeah you know i think in some situations with really really expert teachers it is possible yes, to construct situations is. where people will you know, but it's not for novices you know, it's not for teachers who are just learning because there's so no. much skill that goes into crafting those those scenarios mm-hmm. that I remember trying them. And I and just like yourself, remember them being absolutely woeful and then learning mm-hmm. very quickly that actually things are going to be going to go a lot more smoothly if I start giving a bit of instruction as well as yeah. <laughs> those experiences. As well as this. No, yeah. totally. And I think, um, you know, I, there's been an argument on Twitter several times about like there is a time and place for it and there is there's a time and place for most things but um for me with the kind of the kind of children I teach who have these massive gaps particularly now like children coming back from doing no work last lockdown was mad and that that it's just not something I can fit in at the moment and so and it's not something I fit in very often anyway but It's certainly not, um, it's not one of those things in my toolkit where I'm like, oh, I'll do this today. I would need to know that, you know, they know all they need to know and that this is like an added bonus, yeah. which is an unlikely scenario. I, th- I think that's the key. Um, it's, it's about opportunity costs and how much time we've got. You know, mm. I think there's quite a bit of construction in variation um, in terms of, mm-hmm making sense of you know 
the things, the patterns we notice and stuff, you know, but yeah, whole hog, as you say, you know, the, the time just isn't there, especially when we, when we work in areas of high socioeconomic deprivation where the kids uh-huh. typically will need to, um, will need some sort of serious intervention to, to sort of be successful uh-huh. in that. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you 100%. And then the second paper is one that every primary teacher should read. So um, I'm not going to like drone on for as long as I just droned on then because I feel like I've done a lot of talking, which I know is the whole point of this. But my the one that I think every primary teacher should read and every teacher should read is the um, learning versus performance and really digging into what those two things are and why they are separate and knowing that, um, that, that I have a very rough quote that I will really botched now so I apologize but it's um like the performance today doesn't translate into like learning that's evident tomorrow something along those lines and I just feel like we don't I say we because I'm very giving and I say we as a profession but it's one of those things we need to take it into account when we're teaching we need to understand that someone putting their hand up and mimicking what you've done isn't a sign that they've learned something sometimes it is and sometimes and often I think if you know your class well enough as we gen- generally do as primary teachers you can see when it's someone who you expect to learn it and you expect to pick it up that quickly and it's not that they're just mimicking you and they genuinely have taken it and processed it and then they can do it but there are some some cases where you go oh didn't expect you to come out with that answer. And you go, wonderful, well done, Fred. You have, uh, you've nailed it early on and I didn't expect you to, but it's not. And we need to recognise that it's not learning, it's performance and they have taken what you've done and they've been able to like tweak it a little, which is impressive, but it's not necessarily learning. That's my one that I think everyone should read. Superb. Um, and I think I was more years than I care to remember into my career before. Because everything was geared towards performance, you know, uh-huh. the school's inspection system, the, the national curriculum and getting from level one or P levels to five as quick as you uh-huh. possibly could. And it was geared towards performance. Yeah. And, and then over time, we've had that freedom to actually say, hold on a second. And then it matches up perfectly with everything else that we sort of, you know, everything you talked about earlier on in terms of what's yeah. actually happening in the lesson here. Yeah, it's a great choice. And, and one it could be a threshold that most teachers the teachers need to go through and so so a perfect paper for them all to read yeah I think you're right that is one of those things you do have to you can't I don't think you can just be told it you know this would you know it'd be a great one for people who are are training to read but I think they actually need to see it for themselves in their own class and be able to recognize it but I do think you know once you are teaching and once you've taught for a little while you you should read it and then you'll start to see it and like you say, it's the it's you know it's been the nature of our system for a while, and I think in so many schools it still is the nature. You know, even I'm going to say even in schools that I have worked in in the last few years, when I've been observed and um, like a child has done something right, and then whoever's observing is going, why didn't you then move them on so that they could work by themselves because they they've clearly got it, and you go. How do I know that they've clearly got it? Because they they were able to copy what I did once. And there is that pressure of going, well, why are you not moving them on? 
Why, why are you not um, challenging them? Why are you not giving them the opportunity to show that they can do it? I'm like, well, let's just slow down and actually work out if they've learned it before we go wild. Because otherwise we're wasting our time when we could be teaching them and they could actually be learning. And we're doing them a disservice. But there is still that kind of old school view in some um, leadership teams where they are they see something and they go, well, you should have done that because clearly they were fine when they don't even know your children. Yeah. We should, we should get the big Ebbing House graph and just point to where we are now and say, I'll see you in 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Maybe right. we should we should uh, we should make that for teachers everywhere. We yeah, can sell it. Draw, you know, drawstring like they used to have maps of the world. Oh yeah, just just having the forgetting <laughs> curve and just feel okay. I'm <laughs> well, totally with you there. <laughs> it's um it's been an absolute pleasure, Shannon. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. So your book is out in May. It is. Do you want to plug it? One hundred ideas for primary maths, and actually. The cover is behind me <laughs> because um, that was one thing that Neil Amon said was uh, put, get the print of your cover behind you. And I was like, well, it's too high up. So I was like, I'm as high as I can go on this uh, chair. So, you know, we've got that in now. Thank you for the opportunity to plug. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. And there we have it. A truly fascinating chat full of superb insights into the world of primary education and a fitting end to season one. If you've enjoyed this season, please like and subscribe. And if you have any questions for any of my guests, leave a comment and let the conversation continue long into the night. Until next time, until next season, no less. Thanks for watching. And thanks for listening.